So this is the fourth in a series of talks. And the general theme of the series is things are not as they appear. And this is a theme that really covers a lot of different areas. One of the starting points was to understand that, for example, in the Buddhist tradition, the core metaphor that's used to describe the entirety of what we might call the spiritual life or the religious life is that of waking up. And so the implication is that we live as if in a dream. And the Buddha was asked after his, what he called his awakening, what are you? Are you a god? He said no. They asked, are you a human being? His answer was also no. And he said, then what are you? He said, I am awake. Really suggesting a different status of being. And again, the implication is that before he could say, I am, I am awake, that he would describe his previous life as having been in many ways asleep with all the connotations of that, that one is as, as if caught up in a dream. And again, a lot of the metaphors from Buddhist tradition as well as other traditions point to this suggestion that we are not really seeing things clearly, that we see through, as it were, lenses which distort, which have us living with a certain degree of illusion. This is from, uh, from Kabir, the great poet and mystic from India, 15th century. My inside, listen to me. The great spirit, the teacher is near. Wake up, wake up. And probably again, I'll repeat a famous line from the poet William Blake who said, if the doors of perception were cleansed, everything would appear as it actually is, infinite. So it's a suggestion that the doors of perception are not cleansed. And you remember that other quotation I gave from the Buddha, he said, warped perceptions are what keep your mind on fire. And again, the teaching that the Buddha came to on the night of his awakening is a teaching which I won't go into in detail called the teaching of dependent origination. And in that teaching, there is a set of links which when they are working lead to suffering. Again, suffering in that second sense I gave earlier of reactivity, not simply the presence of the unpleasant. And the first and, as it were, ground factor is ignorance. So again, this is a teaching about how we live in a certain kind of ignorance and how to, how to um, awaken 
how to come to wisdom and knowledge. So again, this, this is a kind, uh, a kind can be somewhat uh, a shocking statement. You know, don't I see reality clearly? And so in the previous uh, sessions, the last three sessions, I've looked uh, so far at three ways that things are not as they appear. And I'm going to add a fourth today, probably continue with that next time, and then add a fifth. And the first one was, we see through the lens of the personal self in often distorted ways. And I'll come back just to say briefly what that is. Again, for those who haven't been at all the sessions. The second is we see through the lens of our social conditioning. Again, the first two are not so hard to see. The third, related to the meditation this morning, we see permanence and solidity where there is actually impermanence and a lack of solidity. The fourth, which I'll focus on a little more today, we, dis- we see distinct, separate individual beings and individual objects or things where they are actually not separate and independent, but rather interdependent. We tend to see them, though, as distinct and separate. And then the last one, and these move generally from the more easy to see to the harder to see, from the more gross to the more subtle. The last one, we tend to see a separation between ourselves and everything else, other selves, other objects, other things, where there is ultimately non-separation. And each of these, in a way, have more obvious meanings and more subtle meanings. Even the idea of seeing through the lens of the personal self or individual self, which is pretty easy to see in some ways. You know, in some of the examples that we've given, we've given examples from the group. You know, some of the examples that I gave, for example, if I'm really down on myself, I will tend to pick up on criticism and just go lamp, lash, what's the verb? Latch. Latch onto that. I would just go on, latch onto that. You know, we know the phenomenon. I'm, I'm kind of down on myself. Ten people say things to me. Eight of them are really positive. Two are kind of negative. I go, right, with the negative. Right? Pretty familiar. Right? Or that we, um, you know, that we see in other ways through the lens of the self. People gave really interesting examples. Again, we can see that when we're hard on ourselves or when we're, looking for something, we want something from someone. If I'm really angry with someone, I will see all the negative things that they do. And if I have an enemy, I will never see the positive things of my enemy, right? That's pretty familiar, that we can see that pretty easily, right? Um, uh, there's a kind of a, met- there's a metaphor or a teaching that's often given in India. When a thief meets a saint, all the thief sees are the, saint, are the saint's pockets. <laughs> it's kind of illustrated. <laughs> you know, it illustrates that point. We see through the lens of the self. Sometimes we see things maybe that are helpful, but we see in a selective way that also can be quite distorting. Um, you know, basically all of our wants, our reactions, our likes, dislikes, desires... Aversion habits uh, lead us to see in certain ways. Again, not 
particularly hard to, to notice. Um, and so the practices that I gave when we looked at that, I invited people a few weeks ago to look at that for a week, and I asked people just to track it, take notes. When, when do you do that? This, is, this would be part of examining that, uh, that way of uh, not seeing so accurately. And the ways that we would see more accurately in this first area is that we would come to recognize what are some of the lenses that I see through. What are some of the more personal lenses or lenses happening just because of what I've just gone through? Um, taking other people's perspectives, cultivating multiple perspectives through dialogue. Um, and what part, one of the ways that we work with that also in meditation is we learn how to experience without being dominated by conceptualization. You know, as meditation gets stronger, and the, you know, we learn to have the capacity to have the mind be non-conceptual. You know, which for me, when I was first exploring that, that was, that was new. I, had, I was a student, and I was just used to thinking all the time, and I was told more or less, isn't that what you're supposed to do? Just think all the time. Maybe it's a little different now. <laughs> Hopefully a little different. I don't know. Maybe not. And, uh, uh, you know, and, and what I found after developing meditation is I think much less than I used to. Maybe 20% as much, but higher quality. <laughs> so anyway, we can come back to that. So we, these are ways that we could practice. The second dimension or the second way that things are not quite as they appear that I named is that we see through our social conditioning. Again, some aspects of that are really clear. I may see through my social conditioning to have a particular political view or social social view. I may, you know, these, some of you may have, and you know, some of us have studied uh, George Lakoff who talks about framing, the way we see through a certain frame such that people on the left and people on the right are hardly seeing the same reality at all. Right? They see through the conditioning and the examples that I gave or what, 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 you know, on immigration, the, you know, the more right-wing term is chain migration and the more left-wing or progressive term is what? Reunification of families. <laughs> they're referring to exactly the same, same thing, but they're, it's almost like they're living in parallel universes, right? And so, uh, and we also see through what researchers these days talk about as implicit bias around any number of uh, different aspects, race, gender, age, and so forth. And we, we actually see how many of you have studied implicit bias some, right? So it's pretty remarkable that we don't, you know, we don't see things. We don't see things in the uh, same way that other people see. You know, and I think I gave the, the example, I think last time, you know, there's been this uh, shooting in Sacramento where someone was unarmed, had a cell phone, and there's good research that shows that white police officers will tend to, to mistake a cell phone for a gun much more often. There's research on that. It's right, right out there, right? That's because of implicit bias, you know. Um, and so this is a, some of this is hard to see. It's a thick form, but are there ways that we actually, that things are not as they appear because we see through those lenses. Right? The third area we looked at last time 
is that we don't really see impermanence. This is getting towards more subtle dimensions. We, we see things as more solid and permanent than they really are. And again, this is something which is especially explored by meditation. And I think because this is connected with the theme today, I'll give some of that background, um, I'll give some of that background information in terms of the fourth area, which is that we tend to see uh, individuals, different beings, as well as objects, as separate and independent, when in actuality, they and permanent, when in actuality they are impermanent, uh, not so solid, not so separate. Now, the last few times I've given some of the background in terms of how our minds work that make us see things as solid. Because when we just look out right now, aren't there just separate individual beings and chairs and walls? Isn't that normal? How many people tend to just see that? I think, I think most of us, right? Or all of us, right? And I'm suggesting that that's not quite right. So what was I drinking? <laughs> or smoking? <laughs> or, or ingesting, right? So, um, but that's what we'll explore. You know? And so it's a, it's a radical proposition in a way. And, how, and our meditations that we did help us to explore that. So let me give some of the background that I did, uh, that I gave last time uh, about, about uh, some of it uh, in relation to things being more impermanent, more fleeting, more flickering, less solid than they appear. Now, part of the background for this was understanding somehow our minds work. And in um, recent psychology and philosophy, there's a better sense of things being not quite as like we think they are. You know, some of this can go back, some of you may have studied the philosopher Kant, you know, at the end, what the end of the uh, 18th century. And he was reacting some to people who thought that science is about really seeing things exactly as they are. And he said that the basic the way the mind works is that we actually don't know what's really there but the way the mind works that makes sense of experience is that we, as it were, project certain concepts and categories onto experience, which are not, and so we see things as separate, solid, as enduring, as having certain qualities, as relating to cause and effect, but it's a kind of projection of the human mind. It's not really seeing what's there. And essentially, Recent psychology, cognitive science, says something quite similar. It basically says that we tend to see that our experience, what we see are representations that our mind has constructed over time, right? Molded by culture, molded by experience, that we actually don't see things quite as they are. And this was a revolution in psychology because until... I don't know, not very long ago, psychologists thought that there's basically reality out there. Our minds kind of take a picture of it. 
and transmit it to our brain. And our brain picks up on what's actually there. And this is connected with the view called logical positivism or positivism more, more briefly. And more recent psychology uh, more or less says that's not actually how things work. And I gave an example um, last time or the time before about how that works for other species. Famous uh, research project called What the Frog's Eye Tells the Frog's Brain. Frogs don't exactly look at reality and just transmit a picture of reality to the frog's brain. Basically, frogs see four things. One of them is little small things buzzing around. Another one is big things casting a big shadow. That's the signal for get out of here, right? The the first one is what? Food, supper, flies, right? Right? And frogs basically have four categories of seeing things. They don't see reality. The signals that come in from whatever is there get interpreted in these four ways. And humans do something similar, but much more complicated. Right? And that's what, that's what the finding is. So that what we actually experience are representations based on models and metaphors uh, which are convenient and helpful and simplify things. The brain really likes to have simplicity and constancy, but most of this is going on completely unconsciously. And we're kind of constructing a reality, and we know that children have to learn how to do that. If that first model was correct, children would just be there at birth, see the world, have all the objects right there, but that's not what happens, right? Children have to, we all had to learn how to come into a world which we recognize in a certain way. And so, uh, so having those concepts and models and metaphors is very useful, but we're not exactly seeing things as they are. Now, interestingly, in Buddhism, there developed a way of understanding this under the term emptiness. So those of you who are somewhat new to studying Buddhism and Buddhist meditation, we're going to have one of the most advanced categories of the whole teachings over 2,500 years, which is the teaching of emptiness. But I think the background that we've had can make it actually simple. And there's a little bit of a problem with the word. You know, sometimes it's translated as openness, but emptiness basically means there are no solid, separate, permanent things ourselves. Basically, everything is a kind of construction. And so it could be a simple way to think of emptiness would be to say everything is constructed, including us, including our minds. Our minds are constructions. How's your self-pride after hearing that? How does it feel to be a construction? So it's sobering, isn't it? It's, it's, and it's also kind of, my colleague Guy Armstrong said, it's very strange to have this world religion which has as one of its main concepts and teachings, emptiness. Doesn't sound quite as interesting as love or bliss or wisdom, right? But it's really pointing to the way that ourselves, objects, trees, have the quality of being empty 
uh, in the way it's talked about in the tradition, is of any inherent, permanent existence. Everything is more a construction. Again, Buddhists didn't use the word construction, but I think that's a helpful contemporary way to talk about this term and to see why we don't quite see things, see things as they are. And again, this can be connected with uh, what we find in a lot of contemporary psychology, particularly the kind of psychology called constructivist, which uses the term construction and says that yes, the sense of self gets constructed at a certain age. Interestingly, it's completely correlated with the capability of the mind to have representational and conceptual thinking. Before representational thinking is there, you don't have a sense of self, or it's much more rudimentary. That a more developed sense of self is connected with how we represent ourselves. And so essentially what this is saying, I think this comes from both contemporary psychology and from Buddhist practice, is that we live in a highly conceptually mediated world, which is useful. We wouldn't have been able to get to Spirit Rock without a heavy use of concepts, right? So it's useful, but it's just not exactly the way things are, right? And so what we can do actually in our meditation is we can actually study using meditative tools to see more closely the way things are. And it can be a little bit surprising or shocking. You know, it can be even a little bit disorienting to look in this way. What happens essentially, are you following me so far? Essentially, we live in a constructed world, but we don't know that we've constructed it. The psychologist R.D. Lang once said, if I don't know... I don't know, I think I know. Do you follow that? If I don't know, I don't know, I think I know. If I don't know, I know, I think I don't know. This is from a book he wrote called Knots, which is really fun to read. Okay. And so, but this is a very confusing area. You know, this is basically, I'll focus for the rest of the time on the sense that there's a kind of emptiness of self, of who we think we are. Again, it doesn't doesn't mean emotional emptiness, but it means that essentially we're more constructed than we are. So we don't really see things so clearly. And this is is confusing. You know, it's one of the, this is probably the most confusing teaching in all of Buddhism. So, you came today for that. <laughs> and, you know, there are a lot of jokes about it. Um, there's a, there's, some of you know there's a very rich vein of Jewish Buddhist humor, which you can especially find on the internet. And here's something from it. The Torah says, love your neighbor as yourself. The Buddha says, there is no self. So maybe we're off the hook. <laughs> And this is from the Japanese uh, Zen tradition, from Dogen. To study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be enlightened by all things. 
So again, there's, this is not at all to say that the concepts are not useful. I just, again, I find my high school English teacher correcting my double negative, but, um, but you know what I mean, that, that concepts are useful. And this isn't to say that we should give up concepts, but it's very helpful to know when we're using concepts that we're using them. And for a lot of what we're exploring, we don't realize that we're living in a constructed world and we take it as reality. Right? And that's, that can lead to issues and problems. Just need to look at the newspaper to see that. Right? Or how's that quotation I like to give from the 8th century Shantideva? This world is confused with insanity due to the exertions of those who are confused about themselves. Hmm. Now, the ways that I, that I have found helpful to explore this sense of the emptiness of self is in two ways. One of them is by exploring how we can see there really to be a sense of flow that doesn't have much sense of self. And some of what we were exploring in the meditations was learning how to be with experience with much less or no sense of self, just to have the experience of here's a sensation, here's a thought, here's uh, a taste, here's a sound. And some of the training in meditation is just to be with the flow of experience more and more and increasingly able to do that without bringing in a sense of self. And so this is actually the main way that the Buddha taught to explore this territory. Just explore all the constituents of experience and see when you bring in concepts. Notice when you do that. It's possible to have a, the flow of experience with, with minimal or no concepts. And interestingly, I would maintain that the most valuable experiences of our lives for most of us, maybe all of us, are those in which there was almost no sense of self. These would be the experiences when we felt deep sense of love. And there's not going to be a whole lot of self there. It's just like the love is coming through. Or it might be when we were with the forest or the ocean or the sunset, just in this very, very full way. And if you're sitting there thinking, oh, I should get a picture. Right? You're not really there in the same way. And so I would say that a lot of our most deep experiences have this sense of flow without sense of self, without self-consciousness, without self-reference, without self-image. And I think if we look to those experiences, we can see that. What, we can connect this with a very interesting understanding which is developed from the Hungarian psychologist named Csikszentmihalyi who developed the concept of flow. How many of you are aware of the concept of flow? Very interesting concept. He said, with flow, a person is performing activity fully immersed in, the, in a feeling of energized focus, full involvement and enjoyment in the process of the activity. In essence, flow is characterized by complete absorption in what one does. Typically, that means no self-consciousness, no self-image. And one of my memories of that was when I was in college and one of the rare times I stayed up all night completing an essay. And I remember being absorbed in it like for six or seven hours in a row and was like being in an altered state. I had no sense of self. 
I was totally with the flow of writing. And it was a very beautiful experience. And I went out into the dawn and it looked like filled with light. It was amazing. It was blissful and a, a different kind of experience, right? From that level of absorption. And I think that's what um, Chiksen Mahalaji is talking about. And I think that those experiences of flow are a way of getting a sense of what this teaching of emptiness of self is about. Which is interesting, because I think we have those experiences a lot more than we think. You know, and one of the areas where this comes into, and I think we've looked at that some here in this group, and I ask people about their experiences. People experience, oh, when I'm playing music, right? Like if one's playing jazz, and you're really with the jazz, you're completely with the flow of music. If you start having a thought, that was a really good riff, at that moment you're out of it, right? Because you're in self. To be really with that flow of music, you have to be, in a sense, in that just with the phenomena. That's similar, I think, to what is being pointed out in this 2,600-year-old tradition about emptiness. Another area might be, you know, I've talked with artists, and they say, when I'm really in the flow of art, there's no sense of self. It's almost like I'm just, something's coming through me, right? Very similar. You also find this in sports a lot. I have a friend named Andrew Cooper who wrote a book called Playing in the Zone, which is a great book. And it refers to, in sports, the phrase being in the zone is pretty much being in the flow. And in those moments, there's no sense of self, right? But people, but having no sense of self, you can still recognize other beings, but you're just not focused. You still recognize the flow of phenomena, but there's not a sense of me. It's just more something is happening when one's in the zone. And again, one of the examples of that that I like a lot is from uh, Michael Jordan from a little over 20 years ago in the NBA Finals. And this was the uh, first half. He had, he he scored seven straight three-pointers. And then he walked by the scorer's table looking at the announcers and he went like this. Have you seen that image? He went like this, like basically saying, it's not me, right? Now, at that moment, what was happening? He had a sense of self. (laughs) Of course, he missed his next shot, right? And, you know, and you, when you, uh, Andy, Andrew Cooper in this book, he gave example after example from sports showing what it was like to be in the zone. It's increasingly, they were, they're typically without a sense of self. This is from, uh, this is from uh, the autobiography of Bill Russell, also a basketball player. And he talked about when he was in the zone, there was, he said, um, profound joy, acute intuition, which at times was like precognition. He thought he would know what was about to happen. A feeling of effortlessness in the midst of intense exertion. A sense of the action taking place in slow motion. Feelings of awe and perfection. An increased mastery and self-transcendence. Those are the words he used, right? Does that make some sense? Right? So this is, a, this is a doorway to what's being talked about as um, uh, in, the, in the tradition is talked about sometimes as not self, meaning that we don't have the usual sense of self. 
And again, the meditations that are pointed to are very similar to what we did earlier. That is, you learn how to just be with the flow of experience. And a lot of what we do in retreats is to learn how to be with the flow of experience, minimizing the conceptualizing. Now, the other thing we do is a second way that we can explore uh, this teaching of emptiness of self. On the one hand, we open more to the flow. On the other hand, we see what gets in the way of the flow. Those are the practices we do, just those two. If you want to explore how we impose constructions on experience, we do two things. We open more to the flow on the one hand, and then we see where the self is very strong. We study that over and over again. If you want to study how we don't quite see things accurately in this way, open to the flow of experience. You can do that in ordinary experience. You know, just be, walk and be in nature and try to just be with the flow of experience. That would be a practice which develops this. The other aspect is to see where the self gets really thick and strong and big. Not to see it as bad, but just to study it. And that, where does that occur? It occurs when we really like something or don't like something when we are uh, reacting in some way towards something, something that happens, some other person. It's not that these are bad again, but we, this is where we study what gets in the way of being with the flow. We also study where there's self-image, uh, where there's uh, a sense, uh, a strong sense of self-consciousness, Again, this is something we can actually study. We don't see it as bad. We say, oh, let me look at that. The meditative spirit. Let's just say, oh, let me look at this. Let me study it. Not trying to get rid of it, but just studying it. The, the way that change occurs is that we see something over and over and something in us just lets go of it. I don't need to do that. Like I was giving the example earlier of talking. When I was first meditating, one of my patterns of seeing self was that I was planning all the time. You know, I was just planning all the time. When I first started meditating, I just spent a year in Germany as a student, and I didn't know whether I wanted to go back to Germany or stay in the U.S. And I started meditating. I would go in, out. I didn't do pause at the time. <laughs> in, out, in, out. Germany, United States. Germany, United States, for like half an hour. <laughs> and then come back, oh, in, out, in, out. Germany, you know. After a month of that, I knew where I wanted to live, but, you know, uh, you know, I just saw my mind as planning all the time. And, and again, planning is very useful. You know, I'm, I have notes for the talk. I did planning. And I planned how to get here on time. And, uh, you know, I, I've sometimes said my sister... Uh, makes her living from planning. She, she's a planner with Kaiser, you know, in Oakland, right? And so, anyway. So, but I got to see those patterns, and after a while I said, gosh, I plan all the time. I don't need to plan so much. You know, it's, it's taking a lot of the uh, available bandwidth, right? And do I need to do that? Not so much, but I still can plan well, right? And so, maybe plan, you know, one-tenth of the amount. Because there it was... Earlier, it was more like this was my mode. This is like came from a family of planners. Maybe any of you come from a family of planners? 
Yeah, and we were just planning. I make the joke that uh, when, 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 you know, like the kids would come home from school and the family would get together before they even would ask me, how are you doing? They would, they would plan when we're going to get together next. <laughs> Extreme. You know? And so, anyway, so the two ways that we study this are that we try to experience the flow in the daily life as well as meditation, number one, and then we look for where the we look for where the self is thick, and this is a ray really of um, exploring. I think this very deep teaching from the Buddhist tradition, seeing the way that it's connected with quite a bit of contemporary psychology and its understanding. And again, the aim here is uh, several. There are several aims. One of them is to actually in this process see which of our constructions are helpful, which of our models of self are helpful, and see whether we are from habit or just like, like for me, totally overdoing some of it to the extent that, you know, it would be hard for me to see a sunset at that time, right? It'd be hard for me to really listen to someone else because my mind was just going into planning mode all the time, right? And it became possible to notice that to experiment with ways where I wasn't having so much of those constructions going on. And uh, so see which of my patterns, habits, ways of constructing are helpful. First aim. Second aim is to actually see that it's possible to experience the world free of concepts. And again, pointing to the way that many of our most valuable experiences, not because we had the idea, I'll drop the concepts, but just when one's, the love maybe towards another person is just so strong, there's not much conceptualizing going on. It's just the way it is. And, but we can actually train so that we can, with intention, go to that non-conceptual place. That's a lot of the training of meditation. We can go to that place where I can, with my, just with my, after enough training, with intention, I can be with the forest. I can be with the sunset. I can be with another person. If I find myself starting to think a lot, I can just, okay, let it, you know, let it go. Let's listen, right? So it's an important capability. And then a third aspect of this is that that non-conceptualization opens us up to deeper aspects of the mind and heart so that the qualities of wisdom and love can increasingly be there more of the time, which is the real aim of all of this. It's to hang out much more of our lives with wisdom and love and helping others. That's what this is all about. And um, the, all these tools are simply ways to um, let that happen, help that happen. And even though I can give a fairly you know, detailed account of the way things are not as they appear, in essence, it's pretty simple. You know, we don't see things so clearly, and this gets in the way of wisdom, love, and helping others in a deep way. That's the essence of all of this. There's a, maybe I'll end with a um, passage. Let's see. Yeah, there's a nice, simple way to say this, which comes from a, actually from a Hindu teacher named Sri Nisargadatta. He said this in a very brief, uh, simple way that's really getting at this. When I look inside and see that I am nothing, that's wisdom. When I look outside and see that I am everything, that's love. 
between these two, my life turns. This is really uh, giving a little more background just to encourage us to uh, keep exploring, keep exploring in all of these ways that, that we've, uh, we started in the meditation that many of us have been doing for some time. Because this is, this is the, the direction towards understanding, uh, coming out of our more uh, conditioned ways of understanding things. Again, for the purposes of opening up that wisdom, that love, that ability to be of use to others. So, (laughs) for those who are new, that usually happens at the end of talks. (laughs) Not, Not really. Um, is it still working? Yeah. Okay. So we have some time for questions, comments, reflections, and wait for the, the microphone. Um, this one was a little bit hard for me to understand that right. the other ones. Yeah. Um, so the principle, kind of like what we're under, what I understand is that we're focusing that um, we're not like separate and we are just interdependent with other yeah. things. So um, I understand that and I understand what you said about the self and the construction, but I don't, I cannot put it together. Yeah, yeah, I would, uh, so two things, thanks, thanks, I think, I'm, I'm sure those thoughts were shared by many, and I realize I, I focus especially on the way that our sense of self is more of a construction, and that I, I didn't focus so much, I think, I think you're right there, in the sense of uh, how we're not so separate. I didn't focus on that so much, right? It was more about, more about how that sense of being a solid, permanent self. That's, that's where I focused a little bit more. Okay, so in the third one? Yeah. Um, the third theme was that of permanence and solidity. So that's... And then I brought that a little more explicitly into looking at the self. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I think they're related. So I think you're, it's accurate because I didn't go so much into that sense of non-separation. Okay, I just kind of like want like I understood everything separate, but I didn't right. get the whole, so okay. Right, right. And, you know, um, when we look at all of this conceptually, it can get complicated, right? And, I mean, I brought, you know, I didn't even bring in a lot of detail. You know, we could go to the complications you know, coming from psychology about how we represent ourselves, how we create representations, all the different examples. I could go into more detail on the Buddhist teaching of emptiness. What I usually like to do here is to say, conceptually, it's pretty complicated. From a practical point of view, it can be looked at pretty simply. That is, try to be with the experience of flow, number one, 
and then see where there's a strong sense of self, number two. And that's a practical way to explore it, which uh, I think is the best way to explore. There are, if you're conceptually minded, there are ways of understanding it. I didn't quote from it, but one of my colleagues here at Spirit Rock wrote a book called Emptiness, which is quite good. It's, he also, I think, had the same strategy I did to be more practical. He said, a practical guide for meditators, <laughs> even though there's, there's you know, a certain amount of theory here. But I find that for most of us, we'll understand this better by exploring it practically. Even though, you know, the concepts are interesting, but they can be confusing if you don't have the practical experience. So thank you. Please. Yeah, I'll just comment because I've had some experience lately. And you mentioned flow. A little closer to you. You mentioned flow and that unsettling feeling. And I think as you think about constructs you talked about yeah. could feel like a lot of coincidences are happening, that unsettling feeling, yeah. you know. Yeah, so you're saying that uh, with that flow experience there sometimes are unusual experiences like coincidences and so forth? Yeah, that that historically before you were in the flow you might think of as coincidences. You might? You might classify them as coincidences before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are, there are um it's not we don't emphasize it so much here at Spirit Rock, but in the tradition, there is talk about what are sometimes called psychic experiences, you know, or 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 some way outside the norm. And again, we don't focus on them so much, but they they do occur at times. You know, I've I've certainly experienced that at times, and there can be a little bit uncanny uh, that that. Um, you know, this is more when one gets into further depths of the mind free of conceptualization, that there, there seem to be ways of knowing which go beyond some of our usual conceptions. There's actually a lot of scientific research on that <clears throat> as well. So um, maybe, maybe for another time. Yeah. Yeah, please. Um, I was here last week, yeah, and I embraced uh, the assignment you gave us. Great, yeah. So I'd like a little closer. To, I'd like to share. Fantastic, yeah. The first thing that I discovered was the joy of impermanence. Yeah. The walking and hearing and seeing and and feeling each moment was wow. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is fantastic. You know, this moment is good, and this moment is you know pleasant or not good, but Can I, pleasant. I just jump in for a second. The assignment was to uh, do something like the practices we did earlier, but to bring it into daily life and just be with the impermanent flow, and and finding that yeah, finding one thing that that does when you're just with the flow, you're not with your sense of oh, I got a rush got to do this, got to do that. And you can open up to, and when you actually can open up in that way, there's a lot of joy. There's a, and I've been wondering for a yeah. while, like, where's the joy? You know, yeah. I've been doing all these practices, but like, where's the joy? Yeah. And I could see that the joy was in not clinging to the moment, but just right. going from one moment to the next moment. Very nicely said, yeah. I mean, the basic finding is that joy is not something which is dependent uh, 
on this or that happening, but it's actually an inherent quality of our being. That's there when we're not quite so stressed. So then I went to visit my second cousin who just had a baby. Yeah. Four months old. And I was talking to the mom. Yeah. And I asked her if she was ready for, you know, for motherhood when it it came. She said, I thought I was, but there's like so much fear. Mm. And we just opened to, when I opened to the vulnerability of life, I mean, this little four-month-old baby, so vulnerable, and you're there to protect and to help grow this this Mm. little being, and that it could be taken from you at any moment. Mm. And I opened to, like, the terror of impermanence. Yeah. Which then brought me to, well, you know, we might as well live in the middle way because we have no control over the loss. Yeah. And um, cultivate the um, wisdom that will cope with, will deal with whatever it is that is presented to us. And have compassion for the human existence. Right. Because that sense of terror could... You know, probably for you, did open up to compassion, right? Mm-hmm. You know, oh, this human life is has its hard aspects, right? Yeah. Right, scary aspects, right? And to hold that with compassion. So that's this beautiful exploration. Anyone in your explorations have something similar occur when you explored? Some of you who did it for the week? Yeah? I, I just think it's really important. We should wait for you for, for the mic, yeah. <clears throat> I just uh, think it's really important when you, when we talk about compassion, we uh, think about self-compassion too. Mm-hmm. I know there are lots of studies on that recently because right. people do beat themselves up. And if you can't get past that, then you can't open yourself up to what we're talking about. Right, it's a big one. And that's why, you know, as, as most of you know, I'm working on a book on transforming the judgmental mind. <clears throat> it's a huge one in this culture. And... As I've sometimes mentioned, I'm working on the book not just because I have an outside interest in it. <laughs> so, but a lot of it was from self-study. Right? So, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so, again, um, we, you know, the, the construct of self can be useful, helpful in certain ways. It can also be something which triggers... Uh, Shame, guilt, self-judgment, all sorts of things. And so we have to somehow navigate with this. And even if we have glimpses that tell us this is not the ultimate reality, right? It's a kind of construction, but we can suffer a lot from constructions, right? Anyone else? We have time for one or two more. Anyone from the visiting group want to ask something? Comment? Anil, please. I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit... I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to how this particular topic about constructions, something you unfold in the social justice... Mm-hmm social activist, social engagement world. Mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah. Um, how, how, do, how does this understanding 
uh, help some in the area of social engagement. Um, for one thing, it's helpful to see that uh, uh, all of the, you know, a lot of the social issues, crises that we have, are the results of unskillful constructions, right? Right, that, you know, something like racism is in a sense a construction. It doesn't have a basis in reality uh, in a certain sense, but it has tremendous uh, power. It gets institutionalized, right? And so for me, I think having that sense of the constructed nature of this means that we ask, what are skillful constructions? What are, it's really parallel of what we do with our own mind. We say, what are skillful constructions in my own mind? What are not so helpful? So it can give us, um, and then we can actually, then it's helpful actually to know what's the history of the constructions. I think knowing history is quite important, right? So we can actually know, oh, here's the history of gender, or here's, here's this history, right? And we can see, we, I mean, <clears throat> one of the other aspects that we can see is that because things are constructed, they can very easily be manipulated, as is, of course, always the case, right? That, that, um, um, people, and that people can do horrendous things on the basis of illusions, on the basis of constructions, which when you look at them carefully, they don't end up. You know, you look at the history, it's like that. So um, that's what comes to mind immediately. So it's part of the... It's part of the toolbox to, to know that. And I think to, you know, for people who are open to point out how things get constructed. And again, some of the, I think for me, like for something like uh, the, re- the recent research on implicit bias, one of the main ways that people are now working with that is with mindfulness. Because you have to have, once people have that pointed out, the way their minds are working, Again, a lot of it is that we use constructions, but we're not aware we're using them. We, we just either uh, think that's the way things are, or we're just operating according to habit and don't even realize that, which is very, very pronounced, right? And uh, so people think a certain way, and in a sense, um, the, here the, the invitation of the whole practice, if we would extend it to a wider thing, is to look really, really carefully at all the constructions. Look at the constructions of your mind. Really look at it. Don't take things for granted, right? Be skeptical towards what you think you believe, right? And um, again, you can look at that meditatively. You can do it through study. Does that start to get at it? So it, it's not the total answer, but it, it's, uh, it's part, of the, part of the puzzle. Yeah. Do you have any, is that any response to that? Or, I was going back to going back to the back to Anil. I think it's a lovely way of seeing it, particularly the implicit bias yeah. component, because I used to do a lot of work with implicit bias. Yeah. Courses that I taught in the past. Yeah. I also really like um, the component of how 
it extends beyond the self. Yeah. And we did a little bit of meta practice oh, yeah. the other day. And I'm really struck by the research on empathy fatigue right. versus compassion. Right. Whereas if you add in compassion, the proactive desire to lessen suffering, empathy fatigue goes away and one's mood goes up. Right. That, that research was from Stanford. Right from the center there. A few, yeah, one of the. Yeah, no. yeah, it's very, it's you know the, to, that um, in some ways, um, empathy. <clears throat> I don't want to get so much get into that, but because some of it's dependent on definitions, but empathy or the ability to feel what someone else is feeling has its limits as a capacity, but compassion, according to this research, does not. Compassion can keep going. It's pretty remarkable. That's the finding, right? And, um, yeah, and so when we link that with the, uh, again, the, the, much like that quote I ended with, the emphasis here is to really, you know, what we we're mostly exploring today is more of a wisdom practice, but really crucial to combine it with the compassion. You know, and then thirdly, I would say action, right? Those are the, that's why, how I was framing it. Wisdom, compassion, and then helping others acting in certain ways. That those are the kind of the pillars of, I think, of what we do here. And, you know, uh, so I, I think it's pointing towards, there's a, I think one of the ways, do you, do you know the work uh, of Rhonda McGee? Right, Rhonda has been based in San Francisco, has been one of the people who's brought mindfulness practice to uh, the study and transformation of implicit bias in pretty interesting ways. Because if you can somehow bring it out from its hidden aspect and see it, then you can notice it when it's there and say, I'm not going there as much as that's possible. Right? It's not easy. Right? But... Okay, so we'll end, as, as we typically do, by a very traditional practice called the Dedication of Merit, <clears throat> where we remember that we, and traditionally this was done <clears throat> with hands together like this, if you feel comfortable, that's fine. If not, that's okay. <clears throat> we offer the benefits <clears throat> of our mourning to ourselves, to everyone in this hall, but then also to all beings beyond this hall. Ultimately, we offer the benefits of our lives, our practice, to all beings without exception for the sake of their freedom, their liberation, deep happiness. Thank you. And um, we'll continue next week. And I'm, I'm happy to uh, meet just a little bit with the group for if, if you have time and energy. Okay. And anyone else who wants to say can do that. Yeah. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.